This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verse 2 to verse 4. Matthew 10, 2 to 4. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, as we know him better as, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, and Lebius, whose surname is Thaddeus, or Judas Lebius Thaddeus, that is, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So we're coming tonight to the very final part of this series of messages on the 12 apostles. And obviously, uh, Judas is the last, and uh, no traitor in history is as infamous as Judas Iscariot. His treachery against the Son of God was the most despicable, heinous crime ever committed in the long history of humanity. For over 2,000 years, his name has become a byword for treachery, unfaithfulness, backstabbing, and the like. Ironically, his name Judas comes from Judah, that means praise. And so his life should have been to the praise and to the honor and glory of God. But instead of that, he became a lying, conniving, treacherous thief who dishonored the name of Christ and disgraced even his own very name. Judas is last listed among the apostles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke places him last. And in the book of Acts that Luke wrote, he's not mentioned at all because by that time, uh, he had taken his own life. Uh, he was the only one of the 12 apostles who came from Judea. The rest were all Galileans. And the name Iscariot uh, comes from two words, Ish, which is Hebrew for man, and Kerioth, which is a town uh, in southern uh, Judea near Hebron. And so it literally reads Judas a man from Kerioth. And Ish Kerioth over time simply became Iscariot. And that's who his name was. His father's name is Simon, and we know absolutely nothing at all about Simon. So who was this hideous man? Why did Christ choose him? Was he simply a pawn in some cosmic game? Was this prophetic determinism, which is a theological term for God needed a traitor to betray Jesus and he chose Judas, and because he chose him, then Judas had absolutely no choice in the matter. Uh, he had no options in his destiny. He had to do what he was chosen to do. Is that true or is it not? Was he a true apostle? 
There's those who say he never knew Christ, he was never saved. But was he a true apostle or was he an apostate? Controversy has always followed this man. It has divided the opinion of theologians uh, for centuries. And so we want to look into his life tonight and try to find out what made this man tick and why he did what he did. All kinds of books have been written about him. All kinds of dramas been made. Uh, you may remember some of you away in the early 70s that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, uh, they wrote this, uh, this show called Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was made for the West End, but eventually went around the whole world, became very famous. And at the heart of that show was the tension between Jesus and Judas. And of course, then they tried to make out, as many others has done since, that Judas got a raw deal, that he really wasn't as bad as we think he was. In fact, they tried to bring out that he was trying to help Jesus, believe it or not. Uh, you know, and, and so they totally give the wrong impression uh, what, you know, in the whole thing. But that's what they did, and it became very, very well known. And, uh, and so over the years, both secular writers and even some churchmen has, has tried to, uh, to get them out from under what they feel is this unfair historic record of this man who was misunderstood and so forth and so on. But is that true? Nowhere in Scripture does the sovereignty of God and the free will of man come together in such a contrasting way as this particular story. And you or I or no one will ever fully, truly ever get to the bottom of trying to, to figure out those two things and put them together. They have taxed the minds of the greatest minds for centuries. However, I think the Bible does make some things clear we want to show that tonight. More has been said about Judas Iscariot in the Gospels than any other disciple except uh, the Apostle Peter. And when his name is mentioned, it is always mentioned negatively. Always. Uh, for example, in Matthew 10:4, Mark 3:19, and John 13:21 and 18 and 2, he's simply called the betrayer. In Luke 16:16, 16, 16, he's called the traitor. And in John 6, 70, Jesus calls him a devil. And John 12 and 6, John calls him a thief. And in John 17, Jesus called him the son of perdition. And perdition means waste and destruction. And in Acts 1, 16, Peter calls him the guide, as the one who guided the soldiers to come into the garden uh, to arrest him in Gethsemane. And so for the sake of time tonight, I would not have the time to, uh, to reference all of those scriptures and read them all, uh, but I will share with you tonight the things that I felt uh, are most pertinent to what we're trying to say this evening. Now, there is no record in scripture of how Jesus and Judas actually met. We don't know the exact moment or how exactly Jesus called this man. No doubt he was a patriotic Jew. No doubt he was like the rest who was longing for a Messiah to come to rid them of these awful Romans who had invaded their land and who held them under their heel, as it were. And so they were all looking for the Messiah, a Messiah to come. And no doubt he was one who was looking for that too, like all the rest of the disciples in the end. 
perhaps like the rest, he maybe heard John the Baptist preaching, particularly about a Messiah that would come. And then eventually, somewhere, somehow, he met Jesus of Nazareth. And having met him, and having saw him, and heard him, and seen the demonstration of his power, no doubt he must have thought, surely this must be the Messiah that we're looking for. That must have been in his mind. And so he came into that apostolic band and was embraced into that and became part of that. We don't know exactly when, but probably, I'm sure, conservatively speaking, he probably was over a three-year period, probably at least. And so after a while, he became the treasurer of the apostolic band. Uh, Matthew was very, very good with figures and numbers because he had been a tax collector in a previous life. Uh, but he had baggage. And that was his weakness before he got saved. But Judas came in and he didn't have any baggage. Uh, we, we know little about him, other than he was a Judean. Uh, and so he came in and he was different than the rest. Even his accent would be different. He would probably be more educated than the rest from Judea. And he had a different way about him. And maybe because of that, maybe he was afforded maybe a little bit more respect within the group. And because he was a kind of a stranger within the group, because you must remember that, that at least half of the disciples were intimately known to each other. I mean, four of them fished together, and others knew each other. Uh, and so he came into that kind of a, a circle where he's a kind of little bit of an outsider. But he was fully accepted. Not one of them for a moment thought that he would be a traitor. That never entered their minds. And so he, he must have conducted himself well. Uh, and, and whenever this hypocrisy began to rise up in his heart and in his life, he acted out very, very well because nobody seemed to notice except Christ. He knew. The Bible says that Christ knew right from the beginning who it was who should betray him. And it seems to be right up to the very last night, right up to that moment when he betrayed Christ and, and he kissed him. It seems right up to then that they really didn't know that he would be the one that would be the betrayer and the traitor. Judas was an apostle. He was numbered with the others. And we'll see scripture for that in a moment. He, like the others, did the signs of an apostle. He would be one of those who went out two by two. And they saw tremendous things happen. They saw great miracles happen. They saw even demons were subject unto them, were excited when they came back. He was part of that. He was never part of the inner circle, like the top three, but he was part of that. He, he was involved in that. It doesn't say he wasn't, didn't go out or wasn't. No, he was right in there, along with the rest of them. He had plenty of opportunity to, to lead Jesus when things get tough, when things get tough. Do you remember at one point, I think it was maybe just after the feeding of the 5,000, and there was massive crowds following Jesus, and they began to... He began to say some things that were very, very challenging. He preached very challenging messages. And it says, after that, many no more walk with him. It was getting too tough to walk with him. And remember he turned around to his disciples and said, will you also go away? In other words, fellas, 
it's time to make up your mind, you know. Others are leaving. Do you want to leave or do you want to follow? And they all followed, including Judas. He could have got out then if he wanted, but he didn't want to. He was part of that band. You have to believe, obviously, that at some point, like the rest of them, he probably had a job, he had a career, maybe had a business, and he gave all of that up to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, he would be as close to Jesus as any of the rest of them. He was with them all when he heard Jesus preach and and his discourses and the Sermon on the Mount and all those wonderful parables and the miracles that he saw and the tremendous things that he was witness to, even the very dead being raised up. He was part of that. He saw that with his own eyes. He heard with his own ears. He saw the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. He saw how people would stay at days at a stretch listening to the Master and he would be there with them. He could have been a mighty evangelist. He, like the others, could end up blazing a trail across the ancient world as a great evangelist. But in the end, he betrayed the sinless, spotless Son of God and died an ignominious death of shame. All of his privileges were squandered. All of his golden opportunities were gone, shunned. His reputation ruined forever. His name became a byword in the annals of history as a traitor of the first order. What a waste. What destruction. No wonder Jesus called him the son of perdition. He had it all. And he turned his back on it and betrayed the very one who offered it. What caused his downfall? What caused his treachery against Christ? And this is where the controversy comes in. Some say he, he became disillusioned with Jesus Messiah. That over that period of time he was with him, he, perhaps he didn't feel he was the Messiah he thought he should be. You know, they were all looking for a political messiah, a military messiah, an economic messiah. And Jesus, Jesus wanted to set up a kingdom that was spiritual. And if he was going to set up a political, messiah, a political kingdom, then he, take, for instance, when he, you know the Romans had this law in Israel, and any law they, they overtook, that... In Israel, it was this. If they were walking along the road and they had a heavy pack in their back, if they saw a Jew, then the law was that Jew was to carry that pack for one mile. And Jesus said, when you carry that pack for one mile, go the extra mile, go another mile. That doesn't sound like a, a mighty, powerful Messiah who was going to rid Israel of the Romans, does it? And so some say he became disillusioned that Jesus wasn't living up to what he thought, in fact, what they all thought should be the Messiah. And certainly Jesus did not advocate taking up arms against Rome or anybody else for that matter. And maybe all this talk of imminent death and dying on a cross and the rising tide of opposition, maybe that made Jesus look weak in Judas's eyes. 
Simon the Zealot could have thought all those things too. But he didn't. Only Judas did. Some say that Judas didn't really want Jesus to be crucified. That this was a ruse in order to force Jesus' hand. In other words, if they would arrest him, if they would say, we're going to put you to death, then that he, would, he would have to. That would force his hand. And he would have to at last say, I am the Messiah. <laughs> and show forth his power. Some say that's why he did it. Now, whether any of these thoughts ever crossed Judas' mind, we will never know. All of that is just conjecture. All of just that is just the notions of mere men. However, one thing we do know, one thought that consistently crossed his mind, and I believe it was the very thought that Satan used that would energize and motivate him to betray the Son of God. And that thought was greed, avarice, the love of money, selfish gain, worldly ambition. In his heart, he harbored this idea of wanting something material. And that grew and grew and grew. And being in the position of the treasurer afforded him the opportunity to take advantage of that and for that avarice and that greed to begin to rise to the surface. Come with me uh, to John chapter 12, just for a moment. John chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spiked nard, or pure nard, that is, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I just stop there. A denarii was one laboring man's wage for one day. So 300 days. And if you take out not working on the Sabbath days and maybe miss a few sick days, that is a year's wages. A full year's wages on one little flask of very costly, precious oil that Mary poured upon Jesus. And his greedy mind saw that and pretending he really cared for the poor, says, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Imagine a year's wages on one bottle of oil. Now, I know, men, you love your wives. And there's maybe a birthday coming up, an anniversary coming up. But I don't think one of you would spend a year's wages on one bottle of perfume. I think your wife would break it over your head, over your head. <laughs> 
But such was her act of selflessness and love towards Jesus. But look what it says. Why wasn't this sold for three? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used it to take what was put in it. Huh. That gives us a little insight into what this man really was about. And Christ saw right through it. Now, Judas was without excuse. Remember that Judas heard every sermon Jesus ever preached. For instance, in Matthew 6, he talked about and spoke against the love of money. In Luke 13, he spoke against greed. The parable of the unjust steward, Luke 16. He even said in Matthew 26, one of you will betray me. And woe to the one who will do it. And he actually said to the twelve, one of you is a devil. However, none of this, and much, much more, none of this softened his heart. In fact, his heart began to grow harder and harder. All along, Christ was showing him what not to be and what he could be in him. He was no puppet on a cosmic string, by the way. He had opportunity to change. He heard the truth, the truth that makes you free. He heard it again and again. But he closed his ears to it. And now the die was about to be cast. But Christ would even give him then the opportunity to step back from the brink. I want you to see tonight, I'm going to read you some scriptures, and I want you to see the many times that Jesus gave him opportunity to step back from the brink. Matthew 26. You don't need to turn to all of these, by the way. I'm going to read them to you, but you can if you want. Matthew 26 and verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper... Now, not, he was in Bethany, the same town as, as Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But this is a house of Simon the leper. There's going to be another anointing here, a different anointing. Similar but different. A woman came to him having an alabaster box of very fragrant, costly oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Even it influenced them. Because this is not, there's little time between these two events, by the way. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be a memorial, as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. And so from that time he sought opportunity 
to betray him. Here is the turning point. Here is the moment. Twice he had seen costly oil being poured upon Jesus and Jesus fully accepting it as worship unto him for the day of his burial. And when he saw that, he must have thought, what a waste. Think how much that cost. And if I had that money, even if I could just get 10% of it, I would be rich. And he came to the point where he felt, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to get money one way or the other. And so he went to the priests, and they offered him 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, a measly, despicable, miserly sum of 30 pieces of silver, and he took it. And at that moment, he sold the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. And at that moment, he sold his own soul for 30 pieces of silver. And it was cheap. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He lost it for 30 pieces of silver for the price of a slave. Some lost their soul for less than that. Esau lost it for a bowl of stew. Demas lost it because having forsaken me, having loved this present world. But for him, it was 30 pieces of silver. Mark 14 and 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. This is the same story, but just different gospels slightly change it a little bit. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. They were glad. They had been waiting for this opportunity. And they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. The lying, conniving dog saw how he could conveniently betray him. What would be the best way, the least troublesome way? And so he's thinking, he's concocting an idea, he's got a plan, he's trying to get some plan to, to get this job done. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. That sentence is so profound that how would you ever plumb the depths of it? Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot. Again, theologians are divided on what exactly that means. Did Satan physically, as a demon spirit would do, enter into him? Or does it mean he was completely taken over and absolutely controlled by Satan? Either way, we know that from that moment on, he was, Satan was in full control 
of Judas. It says, So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude because they knew the multitude would be against this. And then in John 13, and, and I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture for you here of these last moments of Christ's life and the whole betrayal scene. And John 13 I want you to listen closely to this and see how many times Jesus gives him the opportunity to repent and not to do this. So John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel which he, had, which he was girded. Including including Judas. Judas is there. He's right there. And Jesus is washing their feet and his feet. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And that's the impulsive Peter, isn't it? But Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Ah. You see, he's given him clues here. He's warning him. He's telling him in so many words. But not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now imagine, in that upper room, the disciples are getting their feet washed. They should have been the ones washing the feet, but they didn't, so Jesus gave them a lesson in servanthood. And he comes to Peter, and he has that little to do with Peter. And he's already said twice now, not all are clean. And I, I can imagine, I can imagine when he was washing Peter's feet, and he was saying to Peter, but not all are clean. And imagine if, if Judas was standing, and he could have been standing right beside Peter. And Jesus is down on his knees washing Peter's feet. I can imagine Jesus just looking up into the eyes of Judas and saying, but not all are clean. I wonder where Judas' gaze went at that moment. I wonder did he look right into the eyes of the master, or I wonder did he turn his head away in shame. I don't think he turned his head in shame, because I think by this time his heart is hardened. But Jesus is letting him know. 
So he washed their feet, taking his garments, and sat down. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor he who has sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. Three times he said this now. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting from Psalm 49 and 1, as a matter of fact. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit. You should underline that. Rarely will you see that in Scripture, that Jesus was troubled in spirit. It means he was highly agitated. Something is really getting to him. And it's obvious what that something is. Judas, with the devil motivating him, with the very presence of Satan in that room. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Not that he's frightened of the devil, but the fact that Judas is allowing himself to be used by the enemy right there in that very room. And he testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That's the fourth time he said that. How many times does he need to say this? You see, he's helping him. He's trying to give him clues here. He's doing everything but say, it's you. He does say that in a moment or two, by the way. But he's trying to help him. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom who he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John who's writing this. And Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? In Matthew 26, verses 19 to 25, Matthew gives us a little fuller description here. Because in Matthew 26, every one of them, including Judas, said, Is it I? Is it I? Can you imagine Judas saying to Jesus, Is it I? With the 30 pieces of blood money jingling in his pocket? This is how far this man has sank. This is the depths of his treachery that he'd have the gall to say, to hide his treachery, to say to Jesus in front of all, is it I? And Jesus said, you have said so. Hmm. Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread. He said this to John. It is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. That was, the King James calls it the sop. And that was a, that was something that was given to the guest of honor. Jesus 
is making Judas a guest of honor. I mean, that would melt the heart of anybody, but not Judas, because his heart is like stone. There's no more feeling in that heart towards Jesus anymore, other than betray him. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And, and the mystery is in all of this at this moment is that the disciples are not grasping it. They're not getting this like they didn't get a lot of things before. And they're not just grasping this. Listen what it says. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, and that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we have need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Because that was part of his remit, as the treasure. Buy some food, get us some lodgings, and give to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. And boy, it was night. The darkest night of Judas' soul was that night. That was the blackest night of his heart. Let me just continue. We're winding up here, so let me just continue because we need to finish this. In John 18, they're in the garden, Gethsemane, having that, Jesus having that special time of prayer, and it was time to go. John 18, 1, then Jesus, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, the resident says a cohort, a cohort with 600 soldiers. <coughs> detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went to forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. He is in italics. It's not in the original. Translators put it in there to make sense of it, they thought. Actually, it makes more sense if they had left it out. Yeah. He says, I am the great Old Testament name of God. He said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus, the Son of God, spoke the name of God, the power of God went from him, and those soldiers, all of them fell like a forest of trees, all fell backwards to the ground. Such was the power of God at that moment displayed. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. You think by that time, they'd have opened their feet and ran out of that garden as fast as their feet could take them, wouldn't you? But you see, such, such is the animosity towards the Son of God, 
such as the hatred and the desire to kill him, that they stood there. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying may be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you give me, I have lost none. Matthew 26, 46. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. The resonance says he kissed him profusely, again and again on both cheeks. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Friend? The word means comrade, companion, friend. Didn't call him an enemy. Called him a friend, a companion. Why have you come? He knew why he had come. Mark 14, 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. And his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whoever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. I mean, you think with a demonstration of the power of God, you would think that on other occasions, whenever they wanted to put Jesus over a cliff, remember that occasion they wanted to put him over a cliff and he just walked through in the midst of them, they couldn't touch him and he walked away and Judas saw it, he was there. You'd think at this point he would realize <laughs> if Jesus just wants to speak, we're gone, we're toast. He says, lead him away safely. The only way they could lead him away safely if, if, if he held out his hands and let them lead him away, which he did. That's the only way he's going to go safely, isn't it? And as soon as he had come, immediately went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then in Luke 22, we're almost through in a moment, verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude... And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Those have got to be the most poignant, tenderest words that you'll ever read in the New Testament. Judas, friend, <coughs> companion, Comrade, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Of all things, a kiss. The most intimate, the most personal, the most honoring thing you could do, and you're going to use that to betray me with a kiss? It's unbelievable, isn't it? How low could this man go? But Satan is controlling him. Now here's the amazing thing that amazes me. 
Jesus on occasion said, I am the door. If by me any man enter in. Judas kissed the very door of heaven, but he couldn't enter in. He kissed the very door of heaven. He got that close to the door of heaven that he kissed it, but he didn't go in. There's a warning there, isn't there? You know, somebody can be brought up in a Christian home. They can go to Sunday school. They can join a church. They can be in the choir. They can be an office bearer. They can kiss the very door of heaven but not go in. If they haven't repented and haven't got born again of God's Spirit, even though they get that close, they'll never get in. He kissed the very door of heaven. But he didn't get in. And then just to finish, Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful not repenting, but remorseful. Brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. When did he ever think that Jesus was guilty of anything? Huh? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, what is that to us? You see to it. So he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. We'll come back to that in just a moment as we close. But the chief priest took the silver pieces. Listen to the hypocrisy of this. They took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Yeah, but you took them out of the treasury to sell Jesus. But now you won't put it back in again. What a bunch of hypocrites. No, no wonder Jesus called them hypocrites. Ah, and they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Hundreds of years before Jeremiah prophesied, that very thing would happen. God prophesied it. Jesus believed it, but Judas had to do it. Because God prophesied it and Jesus believed it, Judas had a choice. Some think Judas had no choice, but he had a choice. And Jesus gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come back from the brink, but he wouldn't do it. And once it was over, he realized it was almost as if he woke up from this nightmare he was in. What have I done? 
and he could have. Instead of going out hanging himself, he could have run to Jesus even when he was on the very cross and got on his knees at that cross and said, Lord Jesus, I am sorry. And he'd have been forgiven. The thief on the cross was forgiven. He had cursed him just before that. He would have been forgiven. He was remorseful. He was sorry how all this worked out. But he didn't really repent. He didn't go to the one whom he should have went to. Peter was sorry, but Peter repented. And then finally, Acts 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the names was about 120. He said, Men and brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now note this. For he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. What could be clearer than that? He was one of our number. He obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, or at least the priest did on his behalf, and falling head down, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Ooh, that's horrible, isn't it? Probably with some tree over a pre precipice and jagged rocks below, and he put a rope over that and went to hang himself, and now the rope broke, or the branch broke, but he came down all his guts, if you could put it bluntly, just burst out of his stomach. All his vitals burst out. That's indicative of something that already happened in the spiritual. Somewhere along the journey, he lost all those vital spiritual organs in his life. His spiritual heart was gone. Spilled out, lost, destroyed. And now what's happening in the physical is an image of what happened already in the spiritual. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So God knew. And Jesus, by his foreknowledge and his omniscience, they knew this was going to happen. But that doesn't mean to say he had no choice. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And he proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. Note this from which Judas by transgression fell. Not by predestination fell, but by transgression fell, by his transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. If ever a story in Scripture 
warns us not to have an idol in our heart. Not to sell out Jesus to something else or someone else. It's this story. This man sold out Jesus for coins. That may not be the thing that attracts some people, but it could be something else that they'll sell out Jesus for. So there's a great warning here, isn't there? Not to sell out Christ for something or someone, but to be true to the Master. Eleven of them are true. Eleven of them went out, as we read over these past weeks, and did great and mighty exploits for the kingdom of God, and the church spread to the ends of the earth. And we are the beneficiaries of their sacrificial lives for the Master 2,000 years ago today. All except Judas, the traitor. And unfortunately, even though it was a, a lovely name in those days, and many were called Judas, one of Jesus' other disciples called Judas, but today you would not call your dog Judas. Such is the infamy of that name after 2,000 years because he sold out the Son of God for the price of a slave. Could we pray? Lord, we are amazed at your mercy and your compassion and your ability to give chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. And Lord, we thank you that you gave us many chances more than we probably would ever realize. But we thank you, Lord, that in your mercy you kept after us. And we thank you that we did not cross that line. Lord, you pulled some of us back from the very brink and you saved our souls and you washed us in your blood. And we give you thanks for that tonight. So help us, Lord, in spite of what we heard and read tonight. Help us, Lord, to look at the other 11 and be encouraged and inspired and challenged by their lives that we may live an effective life for you in these last days that we live in. That our lives may shine for you, for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.